in the ministry, I knew of a young man who had a very rough home life. As such, he ended up in a foster situation. And there was a teenager in our youth ministry who had compassion on him, invited him to come to youth group. So he came to youth group, loved it, absolutely loved youth group. And eventually, through his time in youth group, hearing the gospel, this young man became a professing believer in Christ and a regular attender at the church. He found a family. And we poured into this man as much as we could during his time with us. And after he graduated high school, he, he listed into the U.S. Navy. And so he, after that announcement, had to come up to, not far from here, Great Lakes, Illinois, and go through boot camp. But before he left for boot camp, I purposely took him out for a meal, and I tried to prep him for the challenges that he would possibly face while in boot camp. And I warned him that there's a good chance you could be mocked and ridiculed once your comrades discover that you're a Christian. And that's okay. But I just want to give you a heads up. This could come. And I said, if it comes, be strong in the Lord. Don't compromise your faith. You be a good testimony for Jesus Christ there at boot camp. That young man went off, went through boot camp. We received good news that he was to graduate and he didn't have many family at all that were able to come up. So my wife and I, with another family in our church, we went up to be there to support him on his big day. And it was great. It was really encouraging to see all of the hoopla that goes through a ceremony like that. And afterwards, we took him out to eat and we let him order the biggest, thickest cheeseburger that he could find on the menu. And it was just really, really neat to hear about his experiences. And I purposely said, did you face any difficulties for being a Christian while in boot camp? And he said, not at all. Nobody knew. All of us live in an increasing hostile world towards Christianity. It's getting worse and worse. You would think we wouldn't face that in Wheaton, Illinois, right? The evangelical capital of the world, but we do. It's getting increasingly hostile towards Christ and Christians. And sadly, the result is many professing believers are just blending in. Blending in to their neighborhoods. Blending in their workplaces, blending in their schools, blending in on their teams. And you say, what do you mean blending in? Well, they just don't want to stand out. They won't want to be set apart. So they're going to chuckle at the inappropriate jokes, inwardly knowing they're wrong, but I don't want to look like this pained me to hear this, so I'll just chuckle with the rest of the people. They're going to allow gossip and slander to slide. They're not going to say anything that would remotely suggest that they're a Christian, they're a churchgoer, they believe in God, they know the Lord. And the reason they just want to blend in, they want to hide, is because they're afraid. 
afraid of being shunned. Afraid, well, if I, if I say something, I might miss out on some promotions that could come my way. Or I might lose my status around here. I'm known as this, but if I let it be known that, oh boy, I, my status is going to tank. Afraid they might lose their starting position on a team or whatever it is. They just want to enjoy a quiet and comfortable lifestyle. That's it. Well, there's a man in scripture who used to be described as a secret disciple of Jesus. But on this Friday of the Holy Week that we're looking at in scripture, all that changed. All that changed. And friends, this man that was described as a secret disciple of Jesus, he's an example for you. He's an example for me with regards to what should you do for Christ? What should you do for Christ? So with that all being said, please join me in Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be looking at verses 57 through 66. Matthew 27, 57 through 66. As you find your place there, we're going to dive right in, and you're going to notice in verse 57, it says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, and nobody really knows where Arimathea is located. There are some early church historians that say it was the same place as Ramah, basically Samuel's birthplace, five miles north of Jerusalem. That makes sense, but we just don't know for sure. But it says, this man was Joseph, verse 57, and tagging on his location is helpful because when you read Joseph of Arimathea, it distinguishes him from all the other Josephs in the Bible. And there's some key Josephs in the Bible, right? We're looking at one in the Old Testament, one of my favorite characters of the Bible. There's the Joseph who was betrothed to Mary. So this is Joseph of Arimathea. He also, verse 57, was a disciple of Jesus. And both Mark and Luke tell us he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme judicial and religious council. Which means he was one of 70 other men who served alongside the Jewish high priest. They were authority figures for the Hebrew people. And it, it's important to keep in mind, especially in this context, Matthew chapter 27, it was the Sanhedrin who had just condemned Jesus to death. And Joseph of Arimathea was there. When that decision was made, and Scripture says he didn't consent to that decision, and so we don't just say, okay, well, he was a part of the group, so he was just all in with the rest of them. No, we're not saying that he approved of their decision. We're not saying that he was screaming, crucify him, when Pilate asked that important question. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. And I believe he probably royally regretted not standing up for Christ in that moment. He knew being called a secret disciple of Jesus was not a compliment. Well, let's see how that changed. Verse 58, seeing that Jesus was dead, he took courage, went to Pilate, asked 
for the body of Jesus. And friends, this was an incredibly bold move. Incredibly bold. What he did there took some guts, as we might say in today's society. He went to the residence of Pilate after hours, the Roman governor of Judea, and he asked for the body of a man who was just condemned, just crucified, who was known as a rebel against Rome. That's how they put it. And so you're asking the Roman governor to give up a body of a rebel against Rome. That takes some guts. Bold move. He had nothing to gain by doing this. Everything to lose by going public here in this moment as a disciple of Jesus. And nobody in this time expected, believed that Jesus would rise again. They all heard what he said, but nobody was expecting it to come true. But if Joseph had not done what he did here, friends, at verse 58, then you know what the body of Jesus would have probably went through? It would have probably come down off that cross, been thrown onto a garbage dump, and burned with fire. And that would significantly change the Easter story, would it not? So it's really, really huge what Joseph did, this bold move. And thankfully, verse 58, Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And today, friends, we thank God. We thank God that Joseph stopped hiding that he took a strong stand for the Lord on this moment, that he gave Jesus a proper burial. Why do we thank God for that? Because what he did has given you and me, the church, many infallible proofs of the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, right? We thank God for this. So this leads us to the question, what should you do for Christ? Well, first of all, continually remember what Christ did for you. That's what God wants you to do. Continually remember what Christ did for you. Joseph, as a member of the Sanhedrin, he was one who heard Christ teach. He was aware of all these miracles that Christ did on this earth, specifically raising Lazarus from the dead fully aware of these things. Joseph, a secret disciple, meaning he believed Jesus is the Messiah. And Luke tells us a little bit of specifics about him, that he was a good and a righteous man who had not consented to the council's decisions and actions. He was looking for the kingdom of God. And I think on this Friday during the Holy Week, when Joseph of Arimathea stood before the cross and noticed all the darkness that surrounded the earth, and he listened to Christ's triumphant shout, it is finished. And then after hearing that, hearing the centurion praise God saying, truly this man was innocent. And then looking at others with him, filled with all, and saying, truly, this was the Son of God. 
And then seeing the crowds leave the cross and beat their breasts, I think all that was what drove him to the point that's it. I can't remain silent anymore. I don't care what it costs me. I must give my Lord a proper burial. And one question as we look at Matthew 27 together this morning that we need to ask is, where were the disciples? The reason I ask this is because as you read through the Gospels, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, he had his followers, right? And what happened to John the Baptist? Herod beheaded him. And what does the scripture tell us about his disciples? They were loyal. They were devoted. They courageously came and took his body and did what? Laid it in a tomb. That's John's disciples. Where were Jesus' disciples? And we do know from the Gospels that while he was on the cross, he told his disciple John to do what? Take care of his mother Mary. So we'll, we'll just take John and we'll say, he's off the hook. Where are the other ten? We got to ask that here in Matthew 27. Where are they? Because they should have been there and be the ones to do what these two men from a group that you would never think people in that group would rise up and do what they did. John tells us their names, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both members of the Sanhedrin. Both of them, when you read through the Gospels about their lives, neither one of these guys was bold or courageous. They were afraid wanted to keep things in secret. But they were there at the cross and they took his body and quickly prepped it for burial with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices as of the burial custom of the Jews and they laid Jesus in a new tomb in the garden by the cross. And I show you all of this this morning because I wanted you to see exactly where these two men were. Because when you notice where they were, you will see clearly through this text and the other accounts from the other gospel writers where they receive strength, where they receive boldness. And that was at the cross. These two men were at the cross. And that's where they were encouraged to stand up for the Lord, go public. Be bold. And so when we come to the cross, we're reminded that Christ died. Christ died. Friends, don't believe for a nanosecond the swoon theory. Have you heard of that theory? That's a theory liberals are promoting and teaching, especially during this time, saying Jesus didn't really die at his crucifixion, but was merely unconscious when he was laid in the tomb, and there he resuscitated. Accordingly, his appearance after three days in the tomb were merely perceived to be resurrection 
appearances. Don't buy for a nanosecond the swoon theory. Why? Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us very clearly what? Jesus died. Died. We're in Matthew, but let me show you. John 19, soldiers came, broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But look at this. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already what? Dead. They did not break his legs. And you know what? That fulfilled scripture. In the Bible, you were not to break the legs of what? The Passover lamb. If they had broken legs, they could not be used. This not only fulfilled scripture, it fulfilled prophecy telling us, Psalm 34, that Christ, our Passover lamb, his legs would not be broken. He goes on and says there in John 19, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, punctured literally his vital organs. And notice this, at once there came out blood and water were medically um, minded people will tell you that right there indicates that death had already taken place. And that fulfilled messianic prophecy, friends, that pierce in the side, Zechariah 12. In Mark chapter 15, when Joseph asked for Christ's body, Mark tells us that Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted, notice this, the corpse to Joseph. So the cross, friends, reminds us that Jesus Christ died. But the cross also reminds us that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Our sins, the Lamb of God, friends, he bore our sins. He offered himself as our substitute. Why did he do this? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And if Jesus did not actually die, then that means he did not die for our sins. You don't want to believe that because that's not what the Bible teaches. The cross reminds us that Christ died, that he died for our sins. It also reminds us that Christ was buried, which is further proof that Jesus physically died. Because you know as well as I do, as we look here at Matthew chapter 27, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would not have buried him if they suspected that he was still alive. So his burial is proof that he actually physically died. It says there in verse 57 that Joseph was a rich man. Verse 60, he buried Christ's body in his own new tomb where no body had ever been laid yet. And that's significant because it fulfilled messianic prophecy, Isaiah 53, 9. Being the only one in that tomb was huge because it means his body would not have been mixed up with any other body that was wrapped in there. He was the only one buried in this new tomb, which obviously prepared the way for his resurrection. But when we look at this burial of Christ this morning, understand that his burial, friends, gives us further evidence that Jesus Christ is 
a man. He is God in human flesh. Amen, church? In the first century, there was some false teaching that was always creeping up to the door of the early church. That was called docetism. It was a teaching that the bodily existence of Jesus was a mere semblance without any true reality. It's the belief that Jesus only seemed to be human. And the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John wrote extensively in the New Testament warning the churches to reject that heresy. Jesus is a man. And if you embrace this belief that he was not a man, he was a mere semblance, he only seemed to be human, what happens when you believe something like that is you all of a sudden are now denying the incarnation, denying the atonement, denying the resurrection. Not a good place to go, right church? Not a good place at all. We believe he was a man, we believe he is God in human flesh because if he truly wasn't a man then he could not have died and therefore he could not have died for our sins and therefore he could not have been buried And the Apostle Paul said something that's very jolting if you go down this path. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's useless. It's worthless. You're still in your sins. Jesus Christ staked his credibility on the fact that he would be buried. The Pharisees, the scribes, they all wanted him, give us a sign, give us a sign. And what sign did he tell them? What sign did he give? The sign of Jonah, right? Prophet Jonah, three days, three nights, a belly of great fish. And look what Christ says, so will the son of man be. Three days, three nights, and the heart of the earth. So he's truly buried And that's a good thing because it paved the way for him to be raised back to life on the third day. And we can believe that and not be still in our sins, as Apostle Paul put it. The resurrection of Christ is we will really hoop it up for next week especially. It is an essential part of the gospel message, friends. A fundamental of the faith. Because you must believe in the resurrection of Christ in order to be saved. Did you know that? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that what? Say it with me, church. God raised him from the dead. Here's the promise. You will be saved. And if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I urge you to do that today. Believe that he died for your sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. And if you put your faith in him alone, he will save you. The way of Joseph here in this text shows us very specifically, the more that you continually remember what Christ did for you, the more you will be strengthened then to boldly take a stand for the Lord. The Bible does not tell us what happened to Joseph after he buried the Lord, but I imagine that he paid a price for publicly identifying himself as a disciple of Christ. 
we already see a little bit in this text, Joseph sacrificed his riches, verse 60. He laid the body of Jesus in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. In other words, that was his, and he gave what was his, and he gave his very best for the Lord. Sacrificed his riches. An incredibly costly thing for him to do, but you can be sure he was probably thinking, this is the least that I can do for my Lord. Joseph and Nicodemus sacrificed their status. I can imagine the Sanhedrin no longer viewed them after this moment as respected members of the council. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if the Sanhedrin removed both of these men from office, kicked them out of the synagogue. And not just these two men, but probably kicked their wives and their kids out of the synagogue and completely cut them off from all of their friends. I don't have anywhere in this text to prove that. All I can do is just think that that may have happened based on what happened when this blind man was healed by Jesus. What did the Sanhedrin do when they found out this blind man was healed by Jesus in the synagogue? Kick that man right out of the synagogue. This group just condemned Jesus Christ. They just ordered him to be crucified. There's no telling what they probably did to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They sacrificed their status. They sacrificed their reputation. And let me tell you, friends, When you boldly take a stand for the Lord, there will be those outside the walls of this building, outside of your family, the church, who will have some things to say about you as you boldly take a stand for the Lord in the community God's placed you. I can tell you that from firsthand experiences. I have boldly taken a stand for the Lord in some public school, school board meetings. I've gone before a public school principal and a public school science teacher, and I went before the superintendent of the school board, and my message remains the same. I asked them, please stop sexualizing our children. And you know what is being said about me by people in our community that roll with them? That man, he's narrow-minded. Don't listen to him. So when you take a bold stand for the Lord, you will sacrifice your reputation by those outside the church. But I must also tell you, when you take a bold stand for the Lord, there will be those inside the church who will have some things to say about you as well. One author spot on with his observations, he said, the evangelical church in America has grown tolerant of just about anyone except the man who stands for biblical truth on unpopular issues. And sadly, I can tell you from firsthand experiences that this statement is so true. And the worst is when those people refuse to talk to you. They have no problem talking to others about you, No problem hiding behind screens and saying things about you. 
when you take a bold stand for the Lord, you will sacrifice your reputation. And yes, it hurts. We're all human. It hurts to have your reputation wrongly attacked. But with God's help, I've been able to press on. Why? Because I know what my ultimate goal is. And the word of God tells me my ultimate goal is to please God. And if I'm pleasing God, that's all that I need to know. You know what I'm saying? And just press on. Do what God wants me to do, and that is to boldly take a stand for the Lord no matter the cost. Joseph and Nicodemus, they sacrificed their reputation. They sacrificed their desires. During this time in Matthew chapter 27, these two men, what did they desire to do around this time? They both, great, devout Jewish men, desired to participate in the Passover. But they knew giving Christ a proper burial was way more important. And so as a result of what they did here, Matthew chapter 27, they made themselves ceremonially unclean by touching a corpse, a dead body as they laid the body of Christ in this tomb. And so by law, they were kept from the Passover. They sacrificed their desires. But Joseph Nicodemus and these other women, as mentioned here, verse 61, they sacrificed their time. It says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. And earlier, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, these women were also there at the cross. They were there at the cross. They're there at the tomb. They sacrificed their time. These women were loyally devoted to the Lord. They were unashamed of their love for him, unlike the other disciples. Those other disciples, where were they? They were behind locked doors in a room for fear of the Jews, but not these women. They were there at the cross. They were there at the tomb. They were willing to do whatever they could do to help with this burial. And Luke tells us that they returned from that place and prepared spices and ointments that they intended to come after the Sabbath and anoint the body of the Lord with. And God rewarded these women for their love, their faithfulness, their devotion to the Lord. They were the last to leave the Lord at his death. And you know what? They were the first to hear of his resurrection. What a great honor. And Mary Magdalene was the first to actually witness the risen Christ. And after looking at these verses, this pastor author, he wisely, wisely observed it's a shame that in the hours of crisis, it's often the Peters who've sworn loyalty to Jesus with big gestures and fullness of self-confidence that disappoint. And it's the secret and quiet followers of the master like Joseph, Nicodemus, and the women that do not hesitate to serve him in love at whatever cost. And friends, we look at their examples and we walk away from this and we say, wow, I know what God wants me to do. God wants me to boldly take a stand for the Lord as well. He wants me to exercise the same kind of love and devotion and faithfulness to the Lord that Nicodemus and Joseph and these women displayed. And you might be thinking, Pastor, you've walked us through this portion of scripture and what I'm seeing here is, what sets me apart from this 
Joseph of Arimathea is, I'm not a prominent person in our community. I don't have these resources and riches. I, I can't do what he did. And some of you might be thinking, I don't have your public speaking abilities or the ability like some of these people to just write these tremendous letters taking bold stands for the Lord. I don't have these abilities. I can't do this. And friends, I just want to encourage you, you don't have to have these abilities or these things to take a bold stand for the Lord. I urge you right where you are listening to this message to purpose in your heart something like this. Lord, I need you. I don't want to compromise my faith and cower in fear in this hostile world. I want to always side with Jesus. I want to lock arms and support those who side with Jesus. I want to go public and be bold and loving for the Lord. So help me, Lord, to speak up for the Lord. Help me, Lord, to stand up for the Lord. I urge you to make that commitment, friends. Because the Lord wants that of you. It's the least you can do. And if you make this kind of commitment to the Lord, friends, you will be amazed at how he chooses to use you amazed even in the smallest and most mundane of things taking bold stands for the Lord can have significant eternal impact Joseph Nicodemus these women they did what they were burdened to do they were thinking this is just the least that we can do this is nothing big it's the right thing to do we're going to do it Nobody's around to really recognize us. We're not going to get anything from this. And you know what? They were used by God to fulfill a crucial piece of his sovereign plan of redemption. That's amazing. They put Jesus in a tomb so he could be raised on the third day. They had no clue the magnitude of what they did and what the result would be. So the next time you think, ah, it doesn't really matter if I join forces and support this group of people who are standing up for the Lord in our community. They've got plenty of people that are with them and rolling with them and support them. They don't need me. Or the next time you think, ah, it won't really matter if I speak up for Christ and just this one little incident. I mean, there's going to come along a bigger, better incident where I will do it. I don't need to say something in this moment. The next time you start thinking and rationalizing that way, stop. Never underestimate how your love, devotion, and faithfulness may be used by God for his eternal purposes. Never, ever. So as we wrap this up, I want to draw your attention to how Matthew ends this chapter. Verse 62, he says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. 
So Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And when I read that, I think it's safe to say that everything that happened and everything that was said while Christ died on the cross, all that made these chief priests and these Pharisees very nervous and very concerned because they witnessed the power of the Most High before their eyes. And they feared this is not the end. Verse 63 shows us they were fully aware of what Christ taught, that he would rise again on the third day. So what they do? They conspired together in a mutual effort to make sure that no fake resurrection could be claimed. They were sure a disciple would come along and steal that body and spread that falsehood. They just were like, we're not going to let that happen. We're going to do everything we can do to make sure that there is maximum security at that tomb. And I love that they did that, don't you? Because J.C. Ryle is spot on about this. I don't have it up here. Listen to it. He says, little did they know that they were unwittingly providing the most complete evidence of the truth of Christ's coming resurrection they were actually making it impossible to prove that any deception or imposition had occurred. Their seal, their guard, their precautions were all to become witnesses. Their own devices became instruments to show forth God's glory. Amen? I love it. And God, you can be sure, was behind even all of that so that there would be no doubt that the resurrection truly happened. So, in closing, I bring you back to this important question. What should you do for Christ? And we've learned from this text and these examples that God wants you to continually remember what Christ did for you. We're gathered with Jesus right now at his table today, church. Do you know every time we come to the table, these are great opportunities for the church to remember what Jesus Christ did for us. And the more we come to the table and remember what's going to be the result of that, we're going to be strengthened in our faith. So that's why we do this until he comes. We come to the table and we remember that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. Friends, that's the gospel. And the gospel gives us hope. Amen? We remember what Christ did for us. And as you come to the table this morning, if the Lord has been convicting you as you're listening to this message about a specific area in your life where you're recognizing, you know what? I've been compromising my faith. Maybe it's my neighborhood or workplace, school, sports team, whatever. You realize you are guilty of blending in with the world. Or maybe you haven't necessarily just blended in, but you're just remaining in hiding. 
if God's convicting you of that, as you come to the table, I urge you before God to confess those sins to the Lord. Claim the forgiveness that God has given you through the blood of Jesus Christ and purpose in your heart to go from this table and this time with the Lord and boldly take a stand for the Lord. Father, thank you so much for this text. We're thankful for how you moved in the heart of those who loved you to put the body of our Savior into that tomb so that you could continue to carry out your perfect redemptive plan. God, I pray as we come to the table that we would remember well what Jesus Christ did for us. And I pray that you would use this time to draw our hearts back to you. I pray that you would empower us with your spirit to go from here and say, I'm not going to remain silent or in hiding anymore. I'm going to be loving and a bold witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Move your people to do your will, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.